0: Alright, thanks Steve. Can I get some thumbs up, make sure people can hear me? everyone. great, good stuff. Had a, a few sound issues earlier this morning. If I get a bit quieter, feel free to interrupt me and tell me to speak up. And I'll do what I can. Uh, well, like we have already said, we are beginning a new series. Um, but it's kind of a continuing series. We're back in Romans. We're picking up where we left off earlier this year in Romans 9. Now this is uh, not an easy passage to understand and it's also not an easy passage to accept. Um, And as uh, a teacher of God's people, I usually feel a little bit inadequate to do that job, but particularly as we come to this chapter. So, uh, like David said, if you have any questions, uh, hold them for the end. Uh, I'll take uh, some time to answer as many as we can before we run out of time. If I don't get to your question, uh, feel free to email me or pop it in a communication card, and and I'll try and get to you throughout the week. Um, But... That being said, Habit, I pray, pray that God would help us to see the truth in Romans 9. pray that God would help me to uh, clearly expound it, and that for all of us, God would change us. Let's pray. Father God, you, you are so good. You have given us your word and revealed to us who you are and how you work in this world. But Father, we recognize that sometimes it is hard for us to understand and hard for us to accept who you are and how you work father today please humble us so that we might come before you knowing that we are sinners who need mercy and grace father please fill us with the spirit to renew our minds so we might understand what you're saying here and father I pray that today you would shape all of us so that we would go away loving you more praising you more knowing Uh, a little bit more, how glorious you are. Father, help me as I speak these words, as I dig into these scriptures for us, that you would help me to speak clearly uh, with simplicity uh, so that we all might understand and grapple with what you are teaching us here in Romans chapter 9. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Well, before we get into Romans... We need to talk about the karate kid. The karate kid is an all time classic, right? It's the story of a kid, he's bullied by others, and so he learns karate from this old man. And, you know, he goes through a bunch of trials and hardships, and eventually he goes on and he takes the bullies out. There's another story that is very similar, although you might not initially realize cool runnings. I used to love this movie. This was one of the movies that, when I was in school, it's like, if we're watching a movie, we're watching Cool Runnings. It's an all-time classic. The story of Jamaicans who can't compete in the athletics, so they learn to bobsled without snow, and and they end up competing in the Winter Olympics. And it's based on a true story. And despite all adversity, this Jamaican bobsled team competes. And and they don't win, but but they uh, overcome a lot of adversity to get there. The thing those two... uh, movies have in common is their underdog stories, right? I love a good underdog story. Uh, I love, you know, a ragtag group. No one thinks they have any chance, but through hard work and willpower, they overcome the challenges and they become heroes. Often they defeat the, the bad guys. Um, you know, they, they kind of stick it to the bullies. The, the ones that are the clear favorites, you know, the ones everyone thinks are going to win. Well, they end up losing. You know, they have every advantage. They have the coach, they have the money, they have the experience. But they also have the pride. And it's so good to see their downfall, isn't it? We love a good underdog story. We love to see the proud fall. But here, in Romans chapter 9, Paul isn't loving seeing the underdog. Sorry, loves seeing the proud fall. He's actually grieved by it. He sees that the crowd favorites have lost, and he is torn to bits by it. So come with me. Look at verses 2 and 3 uh, as we start looking at Romans 9. It uh, It'll be really helpful to have a Bible, because I'm going to keep coming back to it. So make sure you got one in front of you. Um, Romans chapter 9, verse 2. Paul writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul is full of anguish over his people, Israel. Paul is really upset because of the Jews. Why? Well, verse 3 gives us a hint. He says, I wish I could be cut off and cursed, which means Israel are the ones who are cut off and cursed from Christ. Paul is upset, so upset that he's willing to trade places with Israel because Israel have rejected Jesus. But Israel had so many advantages. They were the clear favourites. They weren't the underdogs at all. They were the easy favourites to recognise Jesus. And and if you're not sure that's the case, look at all the benefits Paul says that they have. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, uh, the people of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. I love how Paul just can't help but praising Jesus every time he, he mentions him, right? But But... All those benefits that Israel had, all those advantages that they have should have prepared them for Jesus, but they didn't recognize him. And so in Romans 9, Paul, through tears, asks a question, or rather he answers a question. Given the benefits that Israel had, why did they reject Jesus? Why did Israel reject Jesus when we just saw all the things that they had which should have pointed them to Jesus? And so for the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to answer this question. And he does it by exploring a couple of other questions. And each question is going to be a a different point. So let me tell you what they are. First, he's going to answer the question, has God's word failed? Then he goes, is God unjust? Why does God blame people? And then after he's answered all that, he arrives at a conclusion. So we're going to move through those four things today. So let's keep moving on. Uh, Look with me at the first question that Paul answers. It's right there in verse 6. Paul writes, It is not as though God's word has failed. Do do you hear the question behind that statement? The the question there is, has God's word failed? Paul's saying, it is not as though it's failed. The reason why this is a question that Paul needs to answer is because God made promises to Israel. He said, Israel, you will always be my people. So does God not keep his promises? Does that mean God's word has failed? Because Israel, they've rejected Jesus. So they're not God's people anymore, right? And and the reason why this question is actually really important for us today is because just a few paragraphs earlier in Romans chapter 8, God makes some promises to us. God promises to work all things for our good. God promises to glorify us. God promises he'll never stop loving us. He makes far more promises than that, but there's three big ones. Can we trust those promises? If God's just given up on the promises to Israel, how do we know he's going to not give up on the promises he's made to us? So this is actually a really important question. And so Paul, look at his answer in the second half of verse 6. We'll just go from the top of verse 6. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. God's word hasn't failed because not all who are ethnic Israel are Israel. Not all who are ancestrally, hereditarily Israel are Israel. What does that mean? Well, I've whipped up a very helpful Venn diagram uh, to to kind of show you what he means. He's saying... You know, there there is ethnic Israel. There are those who have descended from the patriarchs. And that's ethnic Israel. They are Israel by descent. But there's a separate category. God's people. And there is some overlap. And where that overlap happens is true Israel. And Paul, he proves this point by giving two examples. He says, not everyone who's descended from the patriarch belong to true Israel. The first example is in verses 7 to 9. Paul shows that just having Abraham as your ancestor doesn't mean God's promises are for you. You know, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God's promises were only for Isaac because Isaac is the son that God promised. And so here, Paul is saying, actually, it's not about heritage. It's about promise. And so not all who are descended from Abraham a part of the promise. The second example is in verses 10 to 13. And it's about Isaac's boys now. Look, look at verse 11. It's helpful to read this one. Romans 9 verse 11. Yet before the twins were born, that is Isaac's twin boys, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purposes in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Paul is saying that God's promises they didn't depend on whether one of the twins was good and the other was bad, right? Because God chose before they were even capable of doing good or bad. Instead, God's promises depend on God's choice. God chooses who his promises are for. And so it's not about dissent. It's not about ancestry it's not that's not the thing that makes you proud of true israel right and so that's why paul says not all israel are israel no one deserves god's promises it's god's gift and so he gets to choose who he makes his promises to and so no god's word hasn't failed god has kept his promises it's just that the people who they were for were different to what some people in Israel expected. They had misunderstood the promises. And so here's what we got to know as we look at God's promises in the Bible. I named a few earlier, but there are stacks of God's promises in the Bible. We have to know that God is faithful to his word. Absolutely. God keeps his promises and we can trust them. But we need to pay attention to them. You know, Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a promise. There is no condemnation. But it's for a particular group of people, for those who are in Christ Jesus. That promise isn't universal. It isn't for everyone. We have to pay attention to God's word closely so that we can correctly apply God's promises and not have misshaped expectations and not think God isn't keeping his word. And so, God's promises are for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who trust Christ Jesus, not for everyone. Don't misapply God's promises, but trust in Jesus so that they apply to you so you can be part of God's people. But but answering this question leads Paul to another question. Right? He anticipates a question. This brings me to my second point, and, and you can see the question in verse 14. Have a look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God unjust? Why why does God choose some people and not everyone? Doesn't everyone deserve to be chosen? How is it fair that God chooses this group and not this group? Is he just going, inny, meeny miny mo? Why does God choose some and not others? Is that unjust? Is that unfair? Well, Paul's answer is, not at all. Because God's choice isn't arbitrary and random. God's choice is actually about mercy. God chooses because he is merciful. Have a look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, that is God, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God is being merciful to choose anyone at all. This is all about God's mercy. It's not like there's a room full of really good candidates and God just picks a few of them. God is actually choosing people who have rejected him. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. No one deserves salvation. And they can never earn it. But God looks on those people. The group of people who are his enemies, and he chooses some of them to be rescued. Now that's astounding, isn't it? That God would have mercy on any of his enemies. But more than that, Paul goes on to show it's God hardens the rest. He reinforces their rejection of him. And so that those who he doesn't have mercy on will never stop being God's enemies. Paul uses Pharaoh as an example in verses 17 and 18. And we read about Pharaoh earlier in Exodus 7 when Steve read that for us. Pharaoh was not a good guy. Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. His previous pharaohs before him had enslaved God's people. They were forced to become builders for Egypt. And they were harsh slave drivers. At one point, one of the pharaohs decided to Uh, kill all the baby boys that the Israelites have. That's infanticide to stop Israel from growing so large that they could rebel. The the Pharaohs are a long line of evil people who oppressed God's people. And this Pharaoh that we read about in Exodus 7, this Pharaoh that Paul's talking about here is no different. This Pharaoh, when, when God asks through Moses to let the Israelites go, he is unyielding. He... He is a bad guy who won't let Israel go, even though the God of the universe demands it. He has completely disobeyed and rejected God. And so what does God do? Well, throughout the accounts of Exodus, we see a number of things happen. In the chapter we read, it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The question is, who hardened it? On well, other verses, it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He, he became more hardened against obeying God. It became less and less likely that he would ever let Israel go. He hardened his own heart against God. But in other verses, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart as if God was the one that forced Pharaoh to not let his people go. There's a lot of difficulty in understanding who's responsible there. But here's a way to think about it. When when God hardens someone, He doesn't create hardness out of nothing. He simply allows someone to go the way they're already going. You can think of it like a dam. Uh, uh, You've got a dam here, a big wall holding back a lot of water. And a small amount is allowed to go through. And usually, you know, powers, uh, uh, turbines to generate electricity or whatever they're doing. The water is someone's sin. Only a trickle is allowed out because God the dam holds sin back. God restrains sin in our world. If God stopped restraining sin, it would be utter chaos. It would be hell on earth. But God, in His grace and mercy, holds sin back from being as bad as it could be. He's a dam to sin. And so when God hardens someone, all He's doing is just loosening His restraint on that person. He lets the sin that's already inside someone's heart flow forth so that the person is just being more themselves, They're just doing more of what they would want to have normally done. He lets people be themselves, and that's actually a really dignifying thing for God to do. He allows people to make real decisions and follow through on the decisions, and he holds them to account for those decisions. If he was to restrain them uh, completely and and just hold back sin and wipe sin out, well, he'd be destroying our freedom and our choice. But God, when he hardens someone, he lets them be who they want to be, which is someone who rejects God. And so what God's doing, Paul says, what God is doing is he's actually having mercy on some, but the rest, he lets them be more of who they are. And so the reality is no one's getting punished who doesn't deserve it. No no one's getting something that they don't deserve. But those who God shows mercy on, they're not getting what they deserve. God God rescues them from the coming judgment. And so God is not unjust. God is perfectly just in his mercy. Now, this should really humble us, right? No one deserves to be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be uh, in a room full of people, well on a computer, but but connected with with a group of people who can all say we're saved none of us deserve this we all deserve God's judgement and we can't do anything to save ourselves, we have no hope in ourselves, we can't work for our salvation but God is merciful and so we have to rely on God, right we have to swallow our pride and say it's not up to us, it's completely up to God and God has chosen us and we don't know why That has to humble us. But then Paul moves on to another question that this raises. Has God's word failed? Absolutely not. Is God unjust? Absolutely not. Verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? The question there is, if God's in control, if God lets the floodgates go and lets our sin come out, well, how can he hold us to account? How can it be our fault if God is the one who does it? Now, now the way Paul answers this question is rich and complex and there's a lot of things that and, and nuance in it. We don't have time to go through all that today. Uh, I, would, I would love to do that, uh, but we don't have time. Can I recommend, I have a book here, which uh, I read on this. It's a very quick and easy read. He has one chapter on it. Um, Romans 8.16 for you, it just covers half Romans. His chapter on Romans 9 is very, very helpful. So if you're interested, pick up this book uh, and read the chapter on it. It, It'll go into far more detail than I can here but it's a very easy read. I highly recommend it. I'm just going to point out two things that we see in this chapter. Uh, Sorry, in in this answer that Paul makes. Two things that uh, Paul wants us to understand when it comes to God holding us to account. The first is in verse 20. Verse 20, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? The problem with the question, alright, the problem with the question, how can God hold us to account is that it has a completely wrong headed attitude to God. It's to argue with God. Is to completely misunderstand who God is, God is God, He is the creator of the cosmos, He is the king of it, He is the judge of it. Who are we to argue with God? Paul uh, shows that God has creator's rights, owner's rights over everything He made, and he illustrates it with, with by using pottery. So, look at the second half of verse 20 with me. Uh, Shall what is formed, say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? You know, the, the potter is well within their rights to do what they want with a lump of clay. They can make a beautiful vase with some of it and they can use the rest to make bedpans. It's up to them, right? The the potter gets to choose. And Paul's saying, God is the potter. God created everything. God formed you out of dust. God gets to choose how his world works. God gets to choose those who he has mercy on. God gets to choose those he hardens. He's saying, you have to let God be God. You can't assume that God is just a, a larger version of a human, right? He's just stomping around, causing trouble and being a dictator. No, that is not God at all. God is the creator. It's well within God's rights to do what he wants with his creation. We are in no position to fight God on this. We are in no position to ever say to God, how dare you? Now, this again should humble us, right? This should absolutely bring us to our knees before God. This should remind us that God is sovereign. He is the king and he is the judge and we don't just claim his hands. We don't argue with God. But the second thing in Paul's response is to understand our role versus God's role in all this. As we have seen all through this chapter, God is the one responsible for mercy. He is the one who chooses whom he has mercy on. And it's not us. It's not about what we do. He chose Jacob uh, before he was even born, before he'd done anything good or bad. It's not about good or bad that we do. God chooses out of mercy. But we are the ones responsible for our guilt. We are the ones responsible for our guilt. Look at verse 22. Uh, Verse 22. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, Bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Now did you notice there that it's God who prepares some in advance for glory? His mercy, his choice, he prepares those for glory. But in verse 22, who prepared us for destruction? It doesn't say. The assumption there is, is, is that what Paul taught in Romans 1-3 to is true. That we are responsible for our own sin. That we make ourselves guilty before God. That our own idolatry or our own self-righteousness condemns us. Here's the thing. God is 100% completely responsible for mercy. But we are 100% completely responsible for our guilt. Let me... Uh, Share this story uh, to make a point. And actually, this story comes from this book. So, again, let me recommend it for you. The story goes like this. Here Here are five people planning to hold up a bank. They're friends of mine. I find out about the plot and I plead with them. I beg them not to do it. Finally, they shove me out of the way and they start out. And so I run after them, I tackle one to the ground, and I wrestle him so that he can't rob the bank. The others go ahead, they rob the bank, a guard is killed, they're captured, convicted, sentenced. The one who's the one man who didn't go with them, who I've restrained, he goes free. Now the question is, whose fault is it that that man died? Whose fault is it that that guard died? Now, what about the man who's walking free? Can he say, because my heart is good, I am a free man? Well, no, the only reason he's free is because of me, because of what I did, because I restrained him, I held him back from going and committing the crime. And so the point is, those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus, we see that salvation is all grace from its beginning to its end. God can absolutely hold us to account because we are guilty. But in his incredible mercy, he saves some. And so what's our response? Well, if we're saved, if we're one of those people whom God has shown mercy on, then we praise our Saviour. There's nothing else for us to do, right? There's nothing we contributed to our salvation. There's no boasting in it. No, no, we didn't do anything. The only thing we added to our salvation is our own guilt, right? So we honour Jesus. We give thanks to him. We give credit to him. We live the life he's now called us to live. And so where does this leave us? We're seeing that God's promises don't fail. That he hasn't been unjust. That he can absolutely hold us to account. But the original question is, why have Israel not believed? That's that's the first question. That's the whole reason why Paul wrote Roman 9. And Paul, he returns to the question in verse 30. Have a look at verse 30 as Paul concludes for us. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? A righteousness that is by faith that the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Why not? Israel pursued salvation by works, not by faith. In fact, salvation by faith, the salvation that Jesus won on the cross when he died, has become a stumbling stone for them. Look at verse 32. Uh, Why not? Because they pursued it. Not by faith, but as if it was by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Why is faith a stumbling stone for Israel? Why has it tripped them up? And not just one or two of them, but the majority is because it takes incredible humility to say, my efforts don't cut it. It takes incredible humility to say, I can't do it. I need someone else to do it for me. I need another to take my place. And when your whole identity and your whole culture is about, I need to do these things to please and honour and God and earn my righteousness, that is a huge pill to swallow. Israel was so puffed up with self-righteousness, that their pride prevented them from accepting Jesus. Israel stumbled on the humility that the cross required. They, They were the crowd favorites in an underdog story whose pride got in the way of their victory. They thought they could work out their salvation, but Jesus says, there is no way. Trust in me. And they said, no. And so here is the final warning of Romans 9. Be humble. Uh, We've talked about humility a lot today, right? We need to be humble before God, who's our creator. We need to be humble because God is the one who shows mercy. But we need to be humble and not let pride get in the way of our salvation. God is offering mercy and forgiveness. We need to swallow our pride and say, we can't do it. We're not good enough for God. There is no possibility that we could ever be good enough for God we need jesus we need to trust that he can do what we can't don't let the message of the cross become a stumbling block for you otherwise we'll end up grieving over you the same way paul is grieving over israel let's pray father god thank you for your word today this is a hard word for us to understand and accept how how you could choose some and not others and it still be just how you can be completely in control yet we are still responsible for our own guilt but father what we have seen today is that you are incredibly merciful to choose anyone at all that you are incredibly kind and compassionate to send your son to die for your enemies father may our pride not get in the way of the cross Father, may today, even for the first time, some of us swallow our own self-righteousness and say, it's not good enough. I recognize that now. Father, forgive me. Father, today, would you save people? And Father, help us to never, ever depart from faith, to never move on from trusting in Jesus to trusting in our own efforts. Help us to stand firmly at the cross and never leave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you've got questions, feel free to chuck them in the chat. And David, are you going to have a look and ask them for me?
1: Yep. Yep. So, oh, if there are any questions there, I'll um, read them out to you. Great. So maybe I'll ask you one for myself, Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, if God is always in control... Um, does that breed a sort of fatalism that it doesn't really matter what I do because it's all preordained?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, The the Bible always holds two things together. And uh, the word for it is called an antinomy. And and it means there's two truths that seem to contradict, but actually don't. At the heart of them is a mystery. And the mystery is in God, and and we may never know it. Um, even, Even in heaven, we may never fully understand it. But there's a mystery there the two truths that holds together is god is completely sovereign and in control and nothing happens that god hasn't ordained and brought about himself yet at the same time everything humans do they are responsible for which implies that we have a choice we are responsible to choose faith in jesus or we are responsible for rejecting jesus right so it holds those two things together so while the while you could read the Bible and end up with, with you know a deterministic view of the universe, there is there is no free choice. Um, you could read that into the Bible, but you'd be missing out on all those verses that say, like in chapter ten, it says, "Those who confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart God raised him from the dead will be saved." Right? That's about it. We have to make that choice. It holds us accountable for doing that, um, and if we don't do that, then then we're accountable for not. Uh, and so we might never understand how God's utter control of the universe meshes with our human responsibility. But the Bible always upholds our responsibility. It says you're responsible for your actions and your choices are real. And so you need to be wise in how you use them. Now, that, that might not be the most, um, that might be not the, the response we want to hear, right? We, we want to hear it's one or the other. But the Bible says these two things are true. You have to hold them together. uh, And you can't overemphasize one for the sake of the other. You have to hold them together. Does
1: that help, David? Yep. Very good. Thanks. That's actually quite clear, Tim. Now, quickly, um, if you just tell us that book that you were. Oh, yeah. uh, Links about. So that's Tim Keller's Romans 8 to 16. For you. I had a quick look at The Wandering Bookseller. Costs $8. If um, you want to buy it. Yeah, it's very cheap for such a decent, thick looking book.
0: Is it mirrored? uh, Maybe I'll send out a quick email throughout the week with with a link to where you can purchase it from. How about that? Okay, terrific.
1: Really helpful book. All right, there's a question from Louisa. If God has elected who he will save, then why should we evangelize?
0: Great question. Uh, This is such a common question. But I found there's a very simple answer in the book of Acts. I just have to find it. Uh, Here we go. So in Acts chapter 18, Paul's in the city of Corinth, and he is um, he's discouraged that people aren't becoming a Christian, and so he says, "Should should I just leave the city and move on?" And, And God comes to him in a vision and says to him, "No, no, Paul. I want you to stay in the city and preach the gospel." Because there are still people there who I've chosen. So, uh, God says, I've chosen people in the city. They will become a Christian. They will absolutely believe God has foreordained it. There is no possibility that they will miss out on salvation. But, Paul is to stay in the city and preach to them. Paul is to go out and tell the gospel. Because the way God brings people to faith is through us preaching the gospel. And again, in Romans 10, in the very next chapter that we're going to get to next week, uh, there's this chain. How can... Uh, uh, actually, let me just read it rather than just trying to remember. It. Uh, so, Romans 10, verses 14. How, can they, how then can they call on the one who they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they accept? Again, those verses are talking about we need to go out and proclaim the good news. We need to go out into the world and we need people to send us all over the world. But we also need to go out into our communities, our workplaces, into our families. We need to proclaim the good news of Jesus because that is the regular means that God uses to bring people to himself. So um, the, the answer is, why, why do we evangelize if God's in control? It's because God has chosen evangelism as one of the means to bring people to himself. Now, God can do amazing things. Paul had a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, But the regular means that God uses is us proclaiming the good news to our friends, family,
1: everyone. Okay, that's very clear again. And Jen is asking from verse 13 in Romans 9. Mm -hmm. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What does that mean?
0: Oh, God just thought Esau stunk.
1: No, no. Um, there's a very strong
0: language, isn't it? Esau I hated. It's actually a Jewish idiom. Um, so it doesn't mean that God literally hated, but it, it's a uh, like a confession of favour of one over the other. So God's not saying, I hated Esau's guts. It's saying, I've chosen Jacob and not Esau. Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. And um, Michelle's asking... Can we have hope for our non-Christian family and friends to accept Jesus and soften their hearts if God is letting them be who they want to be and continue in their hardened hearts like Pharaoh? Mm-hmm.
0: This is this is a really good question and, and one that I've asked a lot. I, I, my older brother and my dad both used to call themselves Christians and have since walked away, and that's tragically sad. I often feel like Paul does at the start of this chapter, grieving over them, wishing that um, they could take my place, right? And, and so um, I feel the pain of this question. I, feel, I often feel the grief of people who I love currently on track to end up in hell. Um, now, here's the thing. God hasn't told us who he's chosen. And so we can always hold out hope that God has chosen those who we love, Um, it it might take a whole lifetime for them to come to Jesus. And God might have chosen for them to only come to Jesus in their final moments. Um, But we don't know who God's chosen. And so uh, it would be assuming upon God for us to lose all hope that people would come to Jesus. God can do amazing things. Paul murdered Christians. Paul was on his way to murder Christians before he became a Christian. If Paul can become a Christian, our friends and family can too.
1: Okay. I think that's all the questions. That's probably a good place to, to finish anyway, I think. So if you have any more questions, you can email um, Tim or email the church and Tim will get back to you during the week with um, with answers either by email or I suppose he could ring you depending on how complex it might be. Oh, there's Tim's email address excellent tim at marsfieldcc.org.au so we'll come to our second song our final song for the morning